Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how and what we write. My guest today is Robert Muchamore. Robert, welcome to the show. Good morning. So just uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, briefly tell us who you are and what you do. So I mostly write for uh, kids of sort of the age 10 to 14 would be my classic audience. I'm probably best known for writing the Cherub series, which is a kind of spy adventure series. And uh, usually when you say spies, people instantly think James Bond with sort of high tech and gadgets. But the point of differentiation with my books is they're very realistic and uh, gritty and I never sort of use high tech or stuff like that. I'm also uh, write various other series, and currently I'm working on uh, a kind of reboot version of Robin Hood set with a 12-year-old Robin Hood character who lives in the present day and uh, has lots of sort of corruption angles and sort of modern things like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you might be the first YA author that I've had on the show, actually. Um, so just sort of rewind a bit and tell us how you got into writing. I mean, even before you were published, what was it that made you want to write? So, I mean, I, I guess if I go back to the very beginning, you know, I'm a kid who liked reading books, probably like most writers are. And I probably got to about 13, you know, when you first start thinking about what do you want to do with your life? And I had this idea that I wanted to be uh, a writer. But that what happened next is actually probably one of the most interesting things, because I tried to write. I, I very much admired sort of literary fiction. I used to read, you know, probably when I'm like 14, 15, things like Martin Amis or Anthony Burgess or and I'd read or John Updike would be another one. So I got it into my head that I wanted to be a writer like that sort of quite, you know, quite highbrow, quite serious. And I spent a very long time trying to write, probably from about age 16 or 17 through to my late 20s, trying to write my literary novel. And frankly, um, it wasn't very good. Uh, and I guess things really changed for me uh, when I sort of decided to do something completely different and write a book for kids. And I, and I just think that suits my personality more. I'm, I'm not a very serious, very adult, very thoughtful person. And when I actually started writing for kids, everything kind of fell into place quite quickly. <laughs> I think you do yourself a disservice because one of the things that marks the Cherub series out from uh, many other YA books of the sort of action adventure side um, of the genre is that they are gritty. They are sort of, they do deal with realistic situations, even though the Cherub organization itself obviously takes a certain sort of leap of uh, suspension of disbelief. The actual, the the crimes and the missions and what have you that they that the kids deal with are all quite grounded. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I always... Um... I, I actually talk about the smallest possible leap. You know, when you're writing something, how can you write it in the grittiest way possible? Because it's very easy when you write just to have some miraculous piece of technology that solves all your problems. Or uh, And one of the things, you know, I mean, computers are a good example. It always bugs me when you get a film and they use a computer and it's always perfect. And, you know, a big thing flashes up on the screen and says mission accomplished or countdown <laughs> in five seconds. And it's all these. And then when you use a computer in real life, if it's one you're not familiar with you know you're fiddling with a mouse and tapping the keys and how does this bit work and where's the menu so just little bits like that kind of bring the reader back down you know so when i write a cherub book or any one of my other books you know the computers are always frustrating and believable and i and that's something i very consciously do with everything is kind of you know not kind of slip into film mode where it's all rather fantastic and just keep everything uh real 
And I think that really works for the audience because at the core of my books is the idea that kids who read them in the sort of 10 to 14 age range, uh, especially the younger ones, almost feel this could be real, this could really happen. Yeah, I, I think that's important for uh, for those style of books, as, uh, for that audience, is to, as you say, let the kids, let the readers think, oh, I, I, this could be me. Uh, you know, this could literally be something that I do in two years' time or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm always quite flattered when I get readers, usually the, the younger end, the sort of 10 and 11-year-olds, and they're like, you know, can I be a cherub agent? Is cherub real? You know, they, they actually really believe it. And when that happens, I think I've done my job. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the uh, the ultimate aim, I think, of any uh, author like that, isn't it? It's to convince people. I've had that with uh, my Brigitte Scharf, um, cyber espionage, funnily enough, so all about computers. Um, I've had people who think that I have some kind of inside track on uh, SIS because of some of the details in those things. And I'm like, no, I, I just made it all up. It's uh, <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> and, the, but no. and, and the thing of making things up is really fascinating. I mean, sometimes you do, you just get a bit frustrated and you just make something up. But I think one of my books was set in Kyrgyzstan and I did loads of research on Kyrgyzstan. I read books about it. I did everything pretty much short of actually going there. And then when the book came out, uh, I just get all these emails from people saying, oh, why, why didn't you use a real country? Why did you make this country up? And it's like, it's a real place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've come across situations like that. Um, so what was – so you, you you failed to be a literary author, as it were, but how did you go about getting the – because the Cherry Book was your first series, wasn't it? That was uh, – The Recruit was your debut novel. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And I always I, I kind of tell this story, which is a bit is it's kind of half true. I always tell the story about how my nephew, Jared, inspired me to write the Cherub books. Jared was 12. He lived up in Australia and he was very um, frustrated with reading, couldn't really find anything that he wanted to read. And I wanted to kind of write a book that would appeal to a kid like him who was like a reluctant reader, which is very much my core audience. Uh, it's one of those stories that has been told so many times and so grandly sim uh, simplified. In fact, you know, a good period of time elapsed between sort of my inspiration from Jared and writing the books and being messy and thinking about various different things. But uh, basically, it was just this idea that uh, kids' books tend to be very nice and very cosy and uh i want it and the, the problem is you know when you get to sort of boys who are and i say boys i mean girls read my books too but mostly boys they get to the age where they're a bit frustrated and kids books just seem very babyish uh and you know they're comparing them with playstation games and uh, graphic novels and you know i wanted to to write for the kids who'd kind of grown out of the other kids books yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, and that's a that's a noble endeavour. I know um, we here. I do the Alex Ryder graphic novels, and we hear from teachers and librarians and parents uh, that they are very good at getting reluctant readers, as you say, boys who really just don't want to pick up a book to read, uh, and then sort of graduating, as it were, from there. I don't want to say that because that sounds like the graphic novels aren't as worthy. And obviously that's been my career for like 20 years. So, um, but you know what, you know what I mean? They're kind of, they go from there to the novels and it's a good way of getting them to reading uh, more books. And I, th and I think people often put the criticism on boys, but I actually think I'm, you know, reluctant readers in general. And I actually think, you know, it's, it's almost as if uh, children's publishing is set up not to appeal to that age group. I think a lot of people go into kids publishing and it's like, uh, I would say it's in terms of people who work for the publishers, it's probably 98 percent female uh, and they kind of they quite like, 
you know, the coziness, the sitting on the carpet with a kid reading a book, and it's all very cozy and it's all very nice. But it's almost as if, as if that setup is sort of constructed to actually fail uh, teen- teenagers. There's, there's definitely more work that needs to be done by people besides the kids, for sure. Yeah. Um, so how did you go about uh, actually writing the book and getting an agent and finding a publisher? Um, there's nothing massively interesting about the story. I will tell it. But I mean, fundamentally, I wrote the book and I wrote it quite quickly. I mean, the first thing I noticed when I woke the recruit was when I was trying to write literary fiction or other things that I tried to write, I'd always get bogged down. It was, you know, I'd write four or five chapters and get fed up and put it in a drawer. And sometimes I'd come back to it. Sometimes it would go in the bin. And when I actually felt from the start that I had a level of confidence that this was pretty good, you know, I mean, I wasn't 100% confident, but I felt I was doing something better than I'd done before. So the writing um, actually came together quite nicely. I think it took me about four or five months to write the recruit. Um, and then I did what everyone does. I well, probably it may be a bit more uh, online now, but I bought a copy of the Writers and Artists Yearbook, and I got lots of double thinking. And you know, which ones do I send it to first? Which ones do these agents look best? And eventually, I just sort of thought, sod it, basically, and I just decided to do it in alphabetical order. So I think the first literary agent I sent my book to was Darley Anderson, who rejected it. And then I got that rejection. And the next agency was Edison Pearson. Uh, Obviously, this is agencies that represent kids books. And um, yeah, that was uh, basically Clara Edison Pearson took me on and became my agent. Uh, And then the publishing process, again, I mean, uh, Mallory Blackman often talks about how, you know, she wrote 13 novels and, you know, got rejected 40 times. And uh, fundamentally, it was a relatively simple publication process. Uh, My agent sent it out to sort of all the major publishers. Uh, You always get the rejections first, because obviously, if they're not interested in something, they just say no. If they are interested in a book, it goes through various different processes and is read by different people in the company and the sales department have their say on it and all that kind of stuff. Um, And then basically, I think we got two publishers who were interested, one of whom was Hachette. And it wasn't a grand, um, you know, lots of money, life changing deal. It was just uh, sort of very much a what they call mid-list, but is really low-list, you know, a few thousand pounds advance, and the book got made, so we agreed to publish the book. So it's not a very exciting story, but uh, it's, I guess it's about as average as a, uh, as a sort of publishing story gets, apart from the fact I was probably relatively lucky uh, to get a publisher with the first thing that was submitted. Yeah, I mean, that is that is quite, I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether it's luck so much as just the fact that it's a very good book, but I know what you mean. It's There are plenty of authors... Yeah. And and one of the things I always emphasize about this publishing thing for people who are trying to get published is how much luck is involved. Now, I mean, you mentioned that you work on the graphic novels for the Alex Ryder series. Now, I basically started writing The Recruit, my first spy book, before Alex Ryder was published. So I knew nothing about Alex Ryder when I created Cherub. In the meantime, Anthony Horowitz came out. He published the first couple of Alex Ryder books, and they were very successful. Now, what that meant is at the time my book was being submitted, spy books were hot. Every publisher wanted to publish a spy series, and there were a lot of them. There was uh, Spy High, there was one called Special Agents, there was the Young James Bond series by Charlie Hickson, and all of these kind of followed on from Alex Ryder. But the lucky thing for me was I just, at random, created a kid's spy series uh, at the time when kids spy series were hot. And if I'd waited until Alex Ryder had come out, 
and then said, oh, spy series are big now. I'm going to write a spy series. It would have been too late. So I think that just shows how, you know, there's, there's, there is just a big element of luck. I was in the right place at the right time. We sent a spy book to publishers at the time when probably five or six publishers were all looking to publish an Alex Ryder rival. Yeah. And I mean, the lesson there is don't chase the market. I've spoken about this before with authors. If, as you say, if you wait for something else to be a success and then think, okay, that's what I'll write. By the time you have written it and start submitting to publishers, it's too late. The market's already moved on to something else. Yeah. I mean, the the classic example of that was the, um, you know, the Hunger Games type books. Yeah. And I mean, we got to a stage where books, shops like Waterstones had an entire bay of basically Hunger Games clones. Uh, there was literally, they had a separate section. I forget what they call it now. YA dystopia, I think, was the... Uh... Yeah, yeah, YA dysto- dystopian fiction, yeah. And this dystopian fiction got to the stage where it had its own bay in the bookstores for about a year. Publishers spent lots of money, published loads of books, and literally those books just got pulped en masse. None of them sold at all. Publishers put a huge amount of money in. Authors' careers ended. You know, it was just, you know, chasing something. And by the time you chase the success... It wasn't there anymore. And I think that's been the biggest example in recent memories, but there are lots of smaller ones. Yeah, no, as I say, it's, you get the same with films as well. You know, once you try to chase a trend, it's, uh, the, the trend has already changed. Yeah, and I mean, even more so with films, because a, a good author could probably turn out a book relatively, you know, in, in, in the time it takes to just write the script for a film. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it takes so much longer to produce. Although, obviously, book publishing famously works far far further ahead than many other uh entertainment media you know you can- yeah i mean i i and this is one of the things people get frustrated with especially with kids publishing because um you know i mean i was talking yesterday to a kid who just emailed me and he's like why are you writing the fourth book in the robin hood series i want to you know the second one isn't even out yet but it's actually we publish the books at sort of six or eight month intervals so the fact i'm working on number four uh while only number one is published is quite baffling to a lot of people uh, and the other thing about that is also, you know, just when you're writing for kids, you have to think about things in terms of slang. You know, like, I mean, what was, the, you know, uh, uh, everything was Peng a few years ago, P-E-N-G, Peng and all the kids. But it, that was around about the time I was writing the first Robin Hood book. But, you know, if you put that slang in the book, by the time the book comes out, nobody really knows what it is. And by the time the book's been in print for five or six years, it just looks completely ridiculous. So it is really interesting that the timescales in publishing actually affect the way you write. And you can't actually be like overly contemporary and up to date with kids with well with any publishing probably but definitely with kids publishing yeah and i think that is true of screenplays as well i think maybe the only media way you could get away with that sort of thing are television and comic books because they're produced so quickly um you know it doesn't take it's it's comic books can literally be six weeks from finishing the script until it's out on the shelves tv obviously isn't quite that quick but it can be much much quicker than novels or movies that's absolutely right, yeah. Um, six to eight month intervals between books, that's really fast. It's The writing process absolutely, uh, absolutely fascinates me because what has struck me over the years is how almost, this is probably not true for every writer, but it almost seems to me that every writer has quite a distinct process and very much struggles to understand how other writers um take a lot longer to write a book or write in a different way and i had a really interesting conversation with david armand once and sort of david armand is at the sort of highbrow literary end of the kids book market uh he's probably most famous for writing skelleg and he sort of 
crafts one of these sort of 150, 180 page books, brings one out every couple of years. And I had a really funny conversation with David Armand once where he's like, God, you're so prolific, Robert. How do you produce all these books? And I'm to David Armand like, why? What, what do you do all day? How do you how do you take that long to write something? It's like because to me, you know, as long as it's right in your head, you know, I, I'm one of the th- I'm not a big editor. I tend to find it's uh, it's almost like shooting a movie and that you do a take and you either get it right or wrong. And if you get it wrong, you throw it away. I'm not one of these people who go back and pick something apart for, for age. If something doesn't work, I tend to just scrap it and start again. Um, so, and another example is someone like Darren Shan, and I've read, I've never actually met Darren Shan, but I read on his blog, he often says, um, you know, oh, I've got so many books that I've written that will never be published just because I'm so prolific. And I don't think I'm quite at the Darren Shan level of having dozens of unpublished books. But yeah, when I, when I write a book, it's like, I write the book, it takes, you know, probably about three months for one of my Robin Hoods that are a bit shorter, four or four months, say, for one of the Cherub ones, which are longer. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know how you would take two years to write a book. I have no idea what those people are doing. <laughs> I mean, you've kind of hit upon the premise of the of this show, really, with the, uh, you know, finding out about everybody's different processes, and they are all entirely yeah, different. Yeah, and I mean, I don't is... want to be critical. You know, I completely no, 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 I, accept I get that David Armand's process of writing a book, he writes some fantastic books. But it, but it is interesting that David Armand couldn't comprehend how I wrote the way I did. And I just think about David Armand and it's like, what do you do all day? Do you just have two sentences and sit there staring at them for three hours? To, you know? <laughs> no, no, I totally get it. As I say, that's one of the reasons why I do the show because I, I'm the same. I think we are. You're absolutely right. We're all the same in that we struggle to understand how anybody else does what they do. And most of the time also, we are quite often uh, writers, I find, wish that we could write you know, in the style of or as well as somebody else, uh, only to find out when we talk to them that they feel the same way about us or about somebody else. And, you know, it's we all live in our own little islands, don't we? And one of the things I'll also say is, you know, when I wrote my first full book, The Recruit, the one that got published, I was very anxious about it. And I edited it far more than what I did any other book that I've written. And one of the things I discovered was sort of when I went back to my sort of from my, say, fifth edit of The Recruit to the original text or the first edit, it was almost like it had become flatter. It was like I'd I'd lost confidence in lines that were a bit quirky or I'd taken a joke up because I decided it wasn't funny anymore. And and I almost feel now it's better to sort of write the book and keep it full of energy and the half-finished thoughts and the stuff that doesn't quite work. And then, I mean, fortunately, this is easier when you're a published author. You send it to your my agent, in my case, always reads it first, and then the editor reads it at the publisher. And they kind of hammer out the niggles. But this thing of, like, you know, editing massively and doing six drafts before anyone reads it, I, I can't really get into that. So, uh, yeah, so you feel like you'd uh, smoothed off all the rough edges too much yeah you it's it's a process where yes you improve some things but i almost feel sometimes when i over edit something i lose as much as i gain Mm, mm. interesting i mean i actually that's funny because i'm completely the other way around i edit and re-edit and rewrite uh you know something into the ground but i completely agree with you when it comes to music uh, this is something I've spoken about on uh, many uh, other podcasts and what have you talking about uh, music is that I am a big fan of bands who just kind of go in the studio and do it and don't overthink it. And because, as you say, it keeps that energy and the quirkiness 
And that's one of the things I really like about it. But when it comes to my own work, I can't seem to apply that same uh, philosophy. Yeah. And I mean, and again, I mean, you can apply that analogy to, um, you know, to, to music as well. I mean, I was thinking, you know, it's funny, I was watching something the other day about uh, Fleetwood Mac Tusk, which is one of their songs that was sort of it. They had an entire brass college band and it was this massive production and it was on an album that they took two years to make. And I mean, it's a great album, but then you get another album where, you know, someone like Neil Young, who, who also does quite big albums, you know, and then you'll get someone like Neil Young who will just decide to sit in his garage and record a couple of dozen songs. And it's one of the best things that he's ever done, you know. So, right. yeah, I, I, I guess books are exactly the same. Yeah, there's an apocryphal story about uh, an early uh, REM, I think, on their second album. They claimed that they booked two weeks of studio time and only used 10 days to record the entire album and spent the rest of the time just goofing off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I mean, you know, the, the, the classic thing, you know, you go, but we're getting completely off track here, but you go to the, you know, you go back to the 50s or 60s and, you know, a band was brought into the studio when it's like, right, you've got to record four songs today. That was just what you did, you know, yeah. so. And playing um, live, yeah. All right, well, let's get back to the books. So one of the things I wanted to ask about, because you mentioned that obviously when it came out, the Cherub series was different. You know, the recruit was very different to the other kind of young spy books like Spy High and the Young James Bond and the Alex Ryder books. It was very different to all of those because it was very gritty, you know, set like on a council estate in in London and just very, as you say, not very high tech. Um, So how did that affect the marketing of it, did you feel as if you were swimming against the tide, or did you feel like it was an advantage to be different and stand out? Uh, I mean, I think with hindsight, I definitely feel it was an advantage to be different. And I think one of the interesting things about Cherub was the way it was bought by Hachette, uh, or as it was then Hodder. Um, they, it was very low key. I got quite a small advance, and the publishing director who bought it, Venetia Gosling. Uh, actually edited the first book and then basically moved on to another job. So it was this basically the person who had the passion for it had left and the advance was very low. So it wasn't a book where they were sticking massive amounts of marketing in. And at the time, I thought this wasn't great. I can remember the like the Joe Craig, Jimmy Coates, which was another spy series came out and it had massive publicity and it had like the entire end racks of the children's section in WH Smith's and Harper Collins spent probably 20, 30 times more on Jimmy Coates than what Hachette spent on Cherub. But what was really interesting was because it was kind of low key, first of all, I think it enabled me to be a bit quirky and different and to get away with stuff that would have probably been edited out of a more of a book that was given more attention. Uh, and also it enabled me to be under the radar and sort of be the cool one, uh, you know, under the radar and I literally just built an audience up by kids, librarians. They read the book. They liked it. They told their mates. So it was very organic. And, and at the time, I was quite jealous of the kind of marketing effort that things like Joe Craig and my friend M.G. Harris brought a series out that, again, got massive marketing. Uh, but it was funny. It was like this slow burn, slow growth. And I think it worked very well for me, actually. It does kind of fit with the premise of the series as well, doesn't it? Being the underdog and things getting sort of passed around almost like a, a secret that only the kids know. Yeah, I mean, I often hear, you know, you hear publishers, oh, my publisher's not doing much with my first book, you know. And I mean, I remember, I think it was my first two books didn't even get stopped by Waterstones. It was only the third one, Maximum Security, that got into a Waterstones. Um 
And, you know, in terms of like marketing and events, you know, people say, oh, we're not doing much of a publicity tour with my first book. I, I didn't do an interview or do, I think it was, again, it was book three when they'd like, oh, actually, this is selling quite well. And I think I got nominated for a couple of like local kids book awards. So it was like book three before, you know, the publisher really did any, got any sense that, oh, actually, this is doing quite well sort of thing, you know. Right. Well, and the advantage there is because you were on book three, when that publicity push happened and more people took interest, there was a backlist of titles for them to go and uh, and look at and buy up and realise that you were serious about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that does that. I think that does, that does help as well. I mean, one of the difficulties, probably one of the big differences with publishing for kids and publishing for adults, is kids' timescales are quite small. Uh, so, you know, if you're an adult, you know, if I wrote an adult thriller and then published another adult thriller a year or 18 months later, that audience would probably hopefully still be on board. If you write for kids, you know, if you write a book when a kid is 10 and then, you know, you leave 18 months behind books, that kid is 13 or 14 when the third book in the series comes out and they've lost interest. So I think it is actually quite important. And I mean, kids publishers do know this and they'll often you know, make sure they've got a couple of books in a series ready to go sort of thing before, you know, they'll delay the start of a series with kids' books. Because kids' timeframes, you know, if you turn around to a kid and say the next book's out in six months' time, oh, God, that's forever, you know. <laughs> oh, so publishers do actually, like, fill the pipe, as it were, ready to put them out quickly. To us, to, I mean, pu- publishers are aware that you need a certain momentum uh, with the, with kids' books, uh, and it works in a different way to what it does with adult books. So I think that sort of the best marketing people and the most sort of strategic publishing directors and things like that do think in those terms rather than just, right, we've got this book by a new author, let's stick it out as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, certainly when I was a kid, I remember I was big into things like uh, the Three Investigators books. Uh, and y- when I was younger than that, even the famous Five and the Harry Harrison Stainless Steel Rat books. And one of the things that appealed... Oh, it's, oh, it's interesting. You know, it's fascinating that you mentioned the Stainless Steel Rat books. I used to love the Stainless Steel Rat books. And it was quite funny because they were out of print for ages. Uh, and then Hachette, my publisher, uh, actually reprinted an anthology edition of, I think it was like the first four books, because they're quite slim. Mm. And they gave this to me and they were really, really like, oh, look, look, we've, we've republished them. We've republished them. And we, we know you said on your website that you like them. So they gave me the book. And I must admit, I read them and they were absolutely awful. It's just like they're, they're, they're terrible, absolutely low. And it's funny because, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, I, I thought they were great about this sort of big um, you know, this this sort of big rebellious guy who basically went around the universe committing heinous crimes. I thought they were really cool. But then when I reread them and as, as an adult, God, they were not good. Uh, I must admit, I haven't gone back to them as an adult. So, I, I wouldn't uh, bother. Yeah, j- j- make... leave, leave your childhood memories <laughs> yeah. intact. Because <laughs> I think you're almost exactly the same age as me. I think you're about six months younger than me. So, Oh, is that all? Right. Okay. Okay. Um, but one of the things that appealed to me about all of those books was that I could read multiple of them. I mean, and I would reread them naturally because as a kid, you do that quite often anyway. But the fact that I could read one and then immediately read the next one and then immediately read the one after that as well was a big part of the appeal to me. I still get this now, and it's actually quite funny because kids will email me and they've literally just read the entire – it's usually the Cherub series because it's still my most successful series. They'll have read all uh, 12 or 17 books in the Cherub series, and then they'll email me uh, and they'll ask me a question about, oh, what happened to this character in book nine? And I'm like, you know, this kid read the book last week, (laughs) (laughs) and I wrote the book in 2004, and I'm like – 
I don't even know who this character is anymore. I've completely. <laughs> and the way I always say it to the kids is like, can you remember the homework that you were set a year ago? And then they kind of get it, you know, while you don't know every detail of every character in your books anymore. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. I like that. I might have to use that myself, even yeah. with, uh, with adults. Yeah, because I get that as well. Yeah, people. Well, it, it's not even just. Uh, readers asking me questions i can't remember myself i have to go back and read my own books to remember what happened oh yeah once i've written them they're kind of out of my mind yeah i mean there are huge uh there are just huge areas of the cherub series that i've just i I just don't remember but i mean i think the cherub series is like 1.3 million words and you know i started writing (laughs) the first one the recruit would have been about 2001 when i started writing it so it's almost 20 years ago that i wrote it so it's not really a surprise that i can't remember it all no absolutely not all right so let's start let's talk about your working day then because you've said that you are i mean you are prolific we know that uh you've written a lot of books there's a lot of words in a relatively short space of time um and you've said that you find it hard to understand how authors who produce less you know to understand what they do all day so what do you do all day what's your sort of average writing day like you know this is a really interesting question and i i I get asked this since when i do school events and it's always the teachers that ask it because they're really (laughs) into getting the kids to like you know you've got to have structure you've got to do things at a certain time and what's really interesting is i can always say um how long a book will take to write so for example and i'm talking about once i've done all the research and the chapter planning so i've just started writing the fourth robin hood book uh the previous two robin hood books the actual process of writing the first draft took five and a half weeks and i know pretty much that the process of writing this one i think it might be a little bit longer it's going to be five and a half to six weeks of actual writing it always averages out in that way i'm very predictable what i can't actually say is what hours i will work or what i will do on a specific day and i think the reason for that is just because certain things are harder to write than others so probably the hardest thing to write especially when you're writing for kids is exposition so basically you've got to explain something Uh, It might be something quite complicated and you've got to explain it in a way that is going to be entertaining and interesting for kids. So that page might take a whole day to write, but then you'll get another scene where, you know, uh, it's dialogue. You know, if it's just a relatively routine piece of dialogue, you know, you'll bang that chapter out in maybe two hours because it's almost you're just writing a conversation. So, uh, you know, in terms of how much you write varies within individual days. And again, the hours and the time that you write quite often when you've done that, you know, uh, brain bending page that's taken you four hours to write. You just say, you know, my head is fuzzy now. I just have to stop. And then another day when you've got a nice flow, I might start at eight o'clock in the morning and keep going till seven, eight o'clock at night with maybe just a quick break for a cup of tea and a snack or something. So days vary a lot. I don't really structure the individual days. Uh, but I can, it always averages out to about the same length of time for a given book. Interesting. And did it take you some time of writing the books to kind of, to realise that you could do that, that you could predict, you know, you could set yourself a deadline and be assured you'd hit it without having to stick to a daily routine? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, two two things I'll say on that. The first thing is the second book I wrote, Cherub Class A, was the scariest because I'd spent quite a lot of time thinking and developing the first book. Mm. And then suddenly I am a writer and I've got to deliver a book in, I think it was six months or something from signing the contract. And I had no idea whether I could do it again. And I had no sense 
really of how that would work in terms of how long it would take me to write. Or So it is a skill you develop. Uh, but the other really big thing that has changed is when I wrote those early books, as I said, you know, my advance wasn't a quit your job and tell the boss to bugger off advance. It was a you've got to keep working at this if you want to be a success. So I think I actually wrote six books while I still had uh, a full time job. And that was and it just an incredibly hard three and a half, four year period between sort of 2002 and 2006. So 2005, sorry, where I was just working, writing, using my holidays, frankly, throwing lots of fake sick leaves and, you know, just doing everything. I just working every minute that I had. And then there was no structure. It was just like, right, I've got 20 minutes sitting on a tube train. I can, you know, go through some notes and do some editing and stuff. So that was a really interesting period of my life, but it was completely exhausting. Yeah, I can imagine. So it sounds like that was quite instructive then. I guess that must have taught you that helped you realise that you could write anywhere and you could write at any time because you were forced to? I didn't really have any choice. And I mean, what's interesting now is once I had the luxury that writing is a full-time job, frankly, I think I write better and, you know, it's certainly less stressful. When I write now, I write when I'm at home, literally at the computer I'm sitting at now with a nice big screen and my favourite keyboard. And this is the only place that I write now. You know, if I go on a trip or something like that, I'm not getting the laptop out and go, you know, I, I just separate it. When you're a full-time writer and you have that luxury, um, I, I, I use it. You know, it's, it, it is very se- it's separate now. Yeah, I, I'm the same. And I actually advocate for other writers to do that if they struggle with writing on the move. I do know writers who do it, who will take their laptop with them. And- I mean, you know, if, if someone, I mean, funny enough, I think the last time I did it, I, I, I was commissioned to write a newspaper article and it was sort of partly promoting a book. And yeah, it was a bit of a rush. And I, I, you know, I did it, I think I did it on the train up to the Edinburgh Festival or something like that, you know, on my laptop. So it's it's not that I've lost the ability to do it. It's just if you have the choice, um, what, why would you do it by choice? You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. I completely agree. <laughs> um, so I didn't realize six books before you became a full-time writer. That's quite, that's quite a period. And that's quite a lot of work before giving up the day job as it were. Yeah. And again, I, I can, I, it's quite hard to think how I did it. Uh, and I just, when I look back on it, I think it was like, adrenaline i was doing a job that was just a you know it was a pretty average job i was pretty well paid it was all right but you know i was fed up with it and i was in my early 30s and i knew this was probably my one chance to do something different and to break out and do something different with my life and become a hopefully a successful writer so i just think there was kind of a level of energy a level of determination and frankly you know during that period uh, if it was a Saturday morning and I was a bit tired, uh, there wasn't a thought in my head that was going, sod it, I'm not going to do anything this weekend. I'm just going to, you know, sit on the bed and watch uh, videotapes, I suppose, or whatever, you know. Um, I didn't have that desire. I wanted to write. I wanted to do it. I want, you know, it completely dominated my life for that um, for that sort of three or four year period, it was what I wanted to do. And frankly, having to go to work or do anything else was just a bit annoying. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. I, uh, it was the same. I hit, I, I'd had a few things published, uh, but not enough, as you said, to sort of merit going full time. And then I was 
uh, laid off from my day job. I worked in a magazine and the magazine shuttered and uh, I was just coming up to 30 and I had to decide whether to carry on in that, you know, sort of take another post in that same career or uh, take the redundancy and try and make a living as a writer. And it ultimately came down to me feeling that if I didn't at least have a go then, I probably never would because of my age. And then I'd regret it afterwards. Even if I, you know, tried and failed, at least I could say, well, I gave it a good go. And and what's interesting is like when I was very tired and, you know, working really hard, uh, there was a bit where it really came down to a knife edge. And it was when I was writing the fourth book, uh, The Killing. And that was probably the most difficult of all the Cherub books to write, just because I wanted the book to be about something that would be very topical and they probably look on very positively now. I wanted it to be about race relations and a racist murder um, in a kind of council estate setting. And the publisher really balked and I kind of cut the idea of the book down and it was all going to end up with a kind of big riot. Uh, And I cut the book down and I really didn't enjoy writing that book. And I think the book's okay, but it's not my best. And this was at a point where I was still working full time and this was getting quite stressful going back and forwards with the publisher. And there was a point where it was just like, this just isn't working and I'm just going to stop. Uh, And, you know, this is the this is, you know, I just can't carry on like this. This is just madness. And then somehow I kind of got through that book. And I think at that time, the second book or the third book had come out and it was getting a bit more successful and i think we got an american publishing deal and stuff like that but it did really come down to a knife edge there was probably a point in about sort of late 2004 early 2005 where it was just like i just can't do this anymore i'm just going to stop so i mean it is interesting to think of this alternative life where i didn't sort of power through the horrible bit (laughs) right where you published three or four books and then vanished back into the world of a day job yeah um, and to be honest i mean one one of the problems was the books were starting to sell quite well uh but frankly the publishers were still being pretty tight with the advances which uh basically meant i couldn't couldn't afford to quit my job uh even at a point when the books were selling quite decently and we were basically like you know i just need a bit more money so i can quit my job and funny enough the two things that actually gave me that boost and the confidence to finally quit were i think it was quite a decent american publishing deal and then shortly after that we sold film rights right uh and that was just two kind of not vast chunks of money but it was enough that i knew i could quit my job and have enough to live on for sort of two and a half three years yeah, that is a tricky balancing act. And it's a point, a sort of inflection point that a lot of writers, myself included, come to sometimes more than once throughout your career where yeah. you're, where I you're can like... Th- I can think of another writer. I, sh- I, sh- I, shan't, I shan't name his name. But, uh, and he was funny. He wrote books for Hachette and he had a very uh, hard time. But unlike me, I was single. He had a couple of kids, family, uh, had a decent job. Uh, probably much better paid than what my job was. And basically with, you know, if I'd had a kids and family, it quite possibly would have gone the other way. Uh, and the nice thing about that guy is he actually then wrote some quite different books and has actually now become incredibly successful. But, you know, this point where you just... You are earning money, but it's not quite enough money. Yeah. 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 And, I, and, to, and to be honest, I mean, I was lucky because I achieved a level of success with Cherub in particular that most other writers don't achieve. So I think quite a lot of writers just almost live permanently in that limbo. You know, they're not earning enough. They they love writing, but they're kind of just stuck in this, you know, f- 
four, mid four figure advances and, you know, loving being a writer and doing a few school events, but not really making enough money to actually do it full time. Right. Well, yes, there are certainly many, many authors in that position. But I think the difficulty comes when you you are successful enough that you kind of feel like this is taking up every moment you have. And yet you're not earning enough for it for you to be able to devote every moment you have to it that's the the sort of tricky point where you have to make that leap almost yeah i mean you know literally literally if you if you quit your job you need to be able to pay the rent it's just as simple as that (laughs) exactly um so again talking about these sort of short publishing time frames and how prolific you are as well how do you go about capturing ideas what's your sort of you know when you have an idea well first of all the age old question how do you get your ideas you know do, do you carry a notebook around do you sort of just note down anything you think of that could be a future book it's it's interesting. And one of the things that I always stress, especially when kids ask me this question, what they don't quite understand is that when you research stuff, that's actually where the stories come from. So I'll quite often start off with quite a vague concept. The, the, the example I use when I speak to kids in schools is Brigham's MC, which is I think it's the 10th book in the Cherub series. And it's about motorbike gangs. And I just had the idea Cherub missions are quite down to earth and quite gritty. And I knew that motorbike gangs are involved in organized crime. And I thought, well, this is a cool idea for a Cherub book. But I didn't really know anything about motorbike gangs. And that's when you start. You know, you watch movies and documentaries. You basically go on Amazon or you go to a library and you buy, you know, if there's if there's 10 books about motorbike gangs, you just buy all 10 and read all 10. And what's really interesting about that process of just kind of doing the work of doing research is by the time I'd read those 10 books about motorbike gangs, I'd read dozens of anecdotes i understood how they worked and then when it comes to putting the plot together you know then i had probably too many ideas you know i had so <laughs> many great anecdotes and great stories about bike gangs that it was like a question of where you fit them all into the storyline so I, I really advocate you know if you've got an idea for a book don't sort of sit there and think you know i've got to have everything perfect before i start researching it because actually researching it is very often where the ideas, you know, turning a germ of an idea into the finished product is actually the research really helps with that. But you do have to be careful not to fall down the research rabbit hole and just think that, you know, you've oh, I've got to do this one little bit of more research before I'm ready to write. Yeah, I mean, the fascinating bit with research, I mean, I'm quite lazy, so I'm not too bad with that. The bit where I found <laughs> it really hard was my Chera prequel series, Henderson's Boys, which is set during the Second World War. So it's historical kids spy fiction. And I first of all, I didn't realise just how much... Uh, just just how much extra work is involved in historical fiction. And it's not like the big picture, like when did Hitler invade France? It's the little picture, like you walk into a cottage in France and it's 1940. Is the floor mud? Is it tiles? Is there an electric light? Is there a gas light? Is there a candle? Getting all those little details was incredibly frustrating. But in terms of going down the hole for research, this is even more true for kids books, because what I did with the first Henderson's Boys was I think I got about 20 of my sort of biggest Cherub fans, printed them all off a copy of the book. Uh, this is like before it had even been sold to a publisher and got them to read it. And I, and I said, you know, all your life you've been asked not to write on books. Please write everything you think <laughs> in the margin, scribble on it. And some of my biggest, best, most impressive pieces of research, you know, where I'd done it, I'd read a book and I was really proud of the fact I'd done this research. And I just remember opening one of these bits and it was like I'd written about a page on, can't remember what it was on, but it just had a line through it. And this kid had just written in big purple pen, boring. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it teaches you a really valuable lesson that, yeah, you don't want to go down the rabbit hole. Just because you've researched something doesn't mean the reader's interested. And that's even more true when you've got kids who, I wouldn't say necessarily have a reduced attention span, but certainly have a different attention span in terms of the things that they're interested in. I think they're certainly less tolerant of things that aren't interesting or exciting. That's certainly what I've found with child reading. I mean, what actually fascinates me is that, you know, people will say this, but then they'll say, oh, my nine-year-old will spend 15 hours solid playing Minecraft if I let him. So they are interested, but what's really fascinating is they're interested in different things to what adults are. And I think, so it's not so much that you can't put detail or stuff in a kid's book, but you've got to figure out what the kids are interested in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I love about YA, and one of the reasons that I read YA, even though I don't write really uh, in the genre at all, but I do read a lot of it, is because it's full of things happening. Uh, you know, I'm very much in favour of stories where things happen. And let's be honest, you know, there's a, a fair tranche of modern literature where that's not the case but again because you can't afford to bore your audience uh there's this sense of forward momentum in the best ya and certainly i get that you know that's in the cherub books that as you say just kind of you have to keep the the readers engaged yeah and i think it's partly you know i mean a lot of people when they're starting they read these and it's, it's even more true with screenwriting but you get these kind of books like how to write a great novel and they are very often talk about you know the structure and you've got to have a beginning and a middle and an end and you've got to have a turning point in the middle and there's got to be tension between characters and and i kind of start with that but one of my sort of rules is that when i do a chapter plan of my books i always chapter plan quite meticulously before i start writing one of my things I say is what I would like in an ideal world is that you could take any chapter out of that book as an individual thing and read it, and it would be a good story in itself. You would just enjoy reading that chapter on its own. Now, that is an ideal. It's not something I achieve because the way stories are structured, sometimes you just have to do you know, some functional storytelling. But I think if you set that as a goal... Uh, I, I remember speaking to someone who wanted to be a writer once and he's like, oh, well, the first three chapters of the book are a bit boring, but that's because I'm getting into the story. And it's like, well, you can't do that. You know, you can't do that <laughs> with anyone, uh, but you definitely can't do it when you're writing for sort of 10 to 14 year olds. Yeah, it's like people who uh, quite often tell aspiring fantasy authors, like, if you have a prologue, get rid of it. You, you don't need it. You think you need it, but actually you don't. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you outline quite comprehensively then. How closely do you stick to that once you start actually writing the draft? It's funny. There are some things. I mean, fun fundamentally these days, most of my books have stuck very closely to the chapter plan. Uh, I actually did have one, one of the Henderson's Boys books. I, I got it completely wrong. And it was funny because my Henderson's Boys Cherub prequel series was going to be six books. And this book got so unwieldy and so complicated that it actually ended up being two separate stories. And then the six book series ended up being a seven book series. But I'm usually quite disciplined. Uh, but the, I think the thing is, is your main structural story points come through. And what actually develops in the writing is just stuff like chemistry between characters, and maybe you write, I mean, one of the things I remember, so like my book, Cherub Divine Madness, it's about a religious cult. And I wrote a scene, it was all in the chapter plan, that James actually escapes the religious cult's building by crawling through the sewers. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, he meets his sister, Lauren, and, you know, and then they escape through the sewers together. But then just as I'm writing it, I had this little moment of inspiration where it's like, 
What if actually James is crawling through the sewer and then his sister comes in and turns on a light and there's actually a gantry above the sewer where he doesn't have to basically wade through crap? Um, and, and, and this is just one of those bits that kids always say is one of the funniest bits in the book. You know, uh, James is basically crawling around in poo and suddenly actually his smart our sister comes in, turns on the light and he realises he didn't have to do that. But that just comes in the writing and it's often bits like that that kind of enrich the book. But the overall structure very much stays the same. That's interesting, yeah, because I know a lot of uh, writers who outline, myself included, use it. You know, we will try to stick to it, but it, we will find ourselves often deviating from it and just kind of using the outline as a guide. Rather I, I than- mean, I, I never shut myself off to having a better idea, but I think, and possibly just because of the way I write, I mean, I will probably spend as long thinking and chapter planning you know, I mean, as I said, my writing process for a Robin Hood book might be as short as six weeks uh, in terms of the first draft. But my planning process uh, is is equally long. So probably because I put so much thought into the chapter plan and stick it away and fiddle around with it and change it, um, I, I just find it easier to change the plan than to change the finished book. <laughs> well, it certainly is. Yeah, it's cheaper, as it were, in terms of uh, yeah. the amount of energy required to do that so do you write linearly do you just start at the start and write through to the end or do you jump around between chapters yeah i mean i i have a very set process um now so basically i would normally try and write one chapter a day actually with the robin hood books because the chapters because it's for slightly younger readers i've kept the chapters very short so sometimes it's two chapters so i'll write one or two chapters in a day and then i will start the next writing day by reading what I've written the day before and, you know, just go through a bit of edit, pick out any mistakes. Then I'll write the next bit uh, and I will not reread anything now. I'm quite ruthless. I will not go back other than just to check a fact or check a character name or something like that. I will not reread anything until I've got to the end of the book. So I'll write in a completely linear way. And then I will come back to the start and obviously go through and do a complete review of the book. Because what I've found over the years is my problem with writing and like constantly worrying about, you know, I'm writing chapter nine and I'm suddenly worrying about something I wrote in chapter six. And But then by the time I get to the end of the book, everything I've written feels very familiar. Whereas just by writing it, reviewing it once and moving on, I'm actually able to finish the book and then actually have quite a fresh take on what I've written because I'm not overly familiar with it when I've finished the book. It takes quite a bit of discipline not to fiddle around, but it actually works incredibly well. And I think after... I think I'm now writing my 33rd book. I've got the discipline to do that. Yeah, I, do, I, I agree completely. That's how I write as well. I mean, I don't write linearly, but I don't go back and edit as I'm writing until I finish that first draft. I have no idea how someone would not would not write linearly. I mean, partly it's because I write sort of thrillery type stories, and I guess it's a bit different. But I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure. I could, I'm fascinated by the idea that you can actually write out a sequence. No, I write thrillers as well. Thrillers and mysteries, that's my thing. Uh, But it's just the way, it's always the way I've written. It's the way that I'm most comfortable writing because I do outline and I have the chapter plan like you. So if if I'm just not feeling in the mood (laughs) for, you know, writing the chapter in front of me. Reversing the order of things, do you find that you write the juicy bits first and the boring bits last or? Sometimes, but my definition of juicy and boring may not be the same as the readers. Uh, You know, sort of what interests me as a writer may not be the, the, 
things that necessarily readers find the most exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I often find that, you know, uh, sort of developing a character and the bit where you introduce a scenario or a character is actually quite interesting as a writer. Yeah. And the big dramatic action sequence at the end is actually like quite procedural to write. Exactly, exactly. I've, uh, I've mentioned this a few times on the show. I hate writing action scenes. I'm told I'm quite good at them, but I hate actually doing them. And so they inevitably are the last thing I write in any manuscript. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's one of my problems. I read quite a lot of very successful authors. Um, J.K. Rowling would be a classic example where there are quite long action sequences. And when I read them, uh, I just find them quite boring. And the, and the reason is, and one of the reasons I try and make my action sequences quite quirky or a bit different is just ultimately, if you've got a hero and you get a big long action sequence, you know that the series of books is going on and that the hero has to survive. You know, when you get one of these Marvel movies where there's a 40 minute CGI punch up at the end and it's like the problem is there's no real suspense because, you know, Spider-Man is going to win. Right. The, the suspense has to come from how the, the the stakes of the fight and how things progress rather than the ultimate outcome, because, as you say, you know that they're going to live. Yeah. But, but but frankly, the way I write in, you know, the frankly, the way I, I write is I do the thing more like the modern TV shows where it's like, actually, you might get a bit of a surprise. And one of the people you think is a good guy actually, you know, gets killed or you put a twist in it or I, it, it's very easy to write quite dull action sequences, I think. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Um, so you mentioned sending out the first uh henderson boys book to you know sort of fans of the cherub series do you use beta readers normally or was that an exception i did it with my uh so that was my second that's kind of the second series after cherub and i was i, I was very nervous because it was cherub related and i wanted to know how the cherub fans would react so it's an interesting technique to use and i did it again on a smaller scale with rock war my third series about kids in rock bands I didn't actually find that as helpful. Uh, so, And I didn't do it with Robin Hood, the series that I'm working on now. So I think it's a technique that's interesting. Uh, and I think it worked very well for Henderson's Boys because I was trying to appeal to an established fan base for Cherub by writing prequels to Cherub. So I really wanted to know how those fans would react. And some of the feedback I got, I mean, a lot of it with kids, they're not very analytical and they'll just say, this isn't good, this is boring. And you kind of have to dig into it a little bit more because kids very often haven't developed the kind of critical skills that adults have. They know they don't like something, but they have a hard time saying why. But I did find it really useful and just stuff that came out like, uh, how they found elements of exposition boring. Um, they said that my main character was actually too similar to the main character in the Cherub books. And there were just, and I found it really valuable. Uh, and also it was very different. It wasn't the kind of comments that you get from my agent or my editor. Because uh, I was because it was kids commenting. So I think it was really valuable. Um, and I, I wouldn't rule out ever doing it again. Uh, maybe it's just as I've got more experience, like with Robin Hood, I, I felt I was on more solid ground in knowing what works and what doesn't. Now I've just got more experience. Mm. So you don't do it as a matter of course with your normal books, with something that isn't the first in a new series is what I mean. So you don't say send uh, drafts around to writer friends to have a first read. No, I mean, I always it's always the first in a series that I put the effort into um, in terms of because I think once you've got that first book in a series right you have um, you kind of you have a structure and you've developed your main characters and fundamentally the subsequent books are just versions of that book. 
so it, it's always the first in the series, developing a series and getting the, you know, if you're developing a series, it might be the thing that you're going to be working on for the next five or six years of your writing life. So it's incredibly important to get it right at the start. So, yeah, lots more effort goes into book one of a series. I mean, a good example of this is Robin Hood, uh, my newest series. I actually wrote a complete draft of Robin Hood uh, where Robin was a girl. Uh, and I thought it'd be quite funny just to reverse it and have Robin Hood as a girl. And then I don't know, it didn't quite work. And my agent didn't really like it. And I think only about 10 percent of that draft actually ended up in the second draft of Robin Hood, which is the one that actually got published and probably even less than 10 percent. It was almost a completely different book. So, you know, but then writing books two and three in comparison, you know, I wouldn't say piece of cake, but yeah, you know, it, it was nowhere near as hard as getting that first one right once you've got everything in place. How do you go about making each book fresh in a series like that? And especially with something like The Cherub, which runs to what, 12, 13 books and several short stories yeah, I, as well. I mean, we ended up we ended up with 17 books in The Cherub series. 17, wow. There's almost part of me that regrets taking it on past book 12. There was just so much pressure from fans and pressure from the publisher and it was literally every time I signed a contract for another couple of Cherub books, it was like, I can't think of any more plots. I just don't know what I'm doing. I don't want to repeat myself. I want the last book in the series to be as good as the first one. Uh, but then, you know, someone offers you, you know, the series is very successful and someone offers you a sort of seven-figure advance. And it's like, ah, it's, it becomes very hard to say no. So I think I kept the Cherub series pretty strong right the way through to the end. But definitely when I wrote those last two books, 16 and 17, 17 wasn't too bad because I wrote it in such a way that it was definitely going to be the last one. And I could do certain things with the characters that meant I could do so. But like number 16, I, I really just felt I was, you know, I want to do this. No, I did that in book four. I want to do that. No, I did that in book seven. I want to. So, yeah, um, it, it's one of the hard. It's one of the hardest things when you sustain a series. I think, as I say, you know, the concept something like Robin Hood or Cherub, where you've got a whole world and different adventures you can go on, you can easily do six, eight, ten books. But once I pushed it beyond that, um, yeah, it got incredibly hard. So you had your own sort of Conan Doyle moment of wanting to wanting to end it and the publisher's going, no, you have to bring it back. Yeah, I think I think that's you know incredibly common. Whatever genre, whether it's a successful series of books, a successful series of film, there's the financial pressure versus a creative pressure. And I mean, it's a very nice position to be in, in a way, because it means you've had a level of success and people want more of something. Uh, one of my early, I always remember when I was published early on, I think Owen Colfer, who did the Artemis Fowl series, I think his books came out about three or four years before mine, and I saw his event at the Edinburgh Festival, and he just published his first non-Artemis uh, Fowl book. And I saw his event, and he was clearly wanted to read and talk about his new book. And I was watching him, and when all the questions from the kids come up, they were asking about Artemis Fowl, and he was like, you could clearly see he was a bit frustrated. He wanted to talk about his new book. And I, at the time, was thinking, oh, that's a bit, you know, he should be more enthusiastic about Artemis Fowl. It's what the kids read. It's what the kids love. And I thought, you know, oh, maybe, he's, you know, he's being a bit mean to the kids. He doesn't sound very enthusiastic. And then sort of now, you know, putting myself in that position 10 years later, I'm excited about my Robin Hood books and the new things that I've done. And I go and I do an event at the Edinburgh Festival and I take 20 questions at the end. And 15 of the 20 questions are probably about Cherub. And I think because I had that experience with Owen Colfer, I, you know, I act enthusiastic and I answer the kids' questions as enthusiastically as I can. But you're always interested in your new, exciting, creative, creative thing, not the thing that you did 
15 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. But of course, to the kids, you know, they may not have read it 15 years ago. They may have only read it six months ago. So to them, it's brand new. And yeah, you've got to, it's another balance that you have to strike, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm always reminded of um, Lemmy uh, from Motorhead being asked like about playing the Ace of Spades. Uh, and he always said like, you know, he was absolutely sick of the Ace of Spades by the time, you know, towards the end, he could not stand that song any longer, but he knew he had to play it. Yeah. I think you've just got to accept that when you have a hit like that, it's what one of the things that the audience is there for and they'll indulge your new thing, but really they want the old thing. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Yeah. And uh, and I mean, it's why it's quite nice to do something like this in a podcast, because obviously the conversation that I'll have here with a writer and hopefully being listened to by people who are interested in writing or want to be writers or who are writers is a very different conversation to the you know, conversation I will have at the Edinburgh Festival where there are 300 kids who read my books in the room. Exactly. I mean, that's, again, one of the reasons that I do the show is to ask writers the questions that we don't normally get asked in interviews. (laughs) So, all right, along those lines, then, let's start to bring this to a close. Tell me, what do you think you're pretty good at? What do I think I'm pretty good at? It's, it's, It's a tough question because when you say you're good at something, it's incredibly easy to come across as being arrogant. I guess probably uh, the, 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 the two things I would say uh, that have really helped me are, and this is incredibly important if you want to be a writer, is although I don't quite know how much work I'll do on an individual day, I've always managed to deliver my books on time. I've never messed the publisher around. I've always had that discipline of being able to sign a contract and write the book in the time schedule and deliver it inside the date. And I think people don't realise how important that is, especially when you write for kids. Because basically, I mean, I've seen it with other authors, you know, they've had a big push from a publisher and then the second book doesn't turn up for three years and by that time everyone's forgotten about them. So I think having that discipline is something that I'm good at. The other thing I think that has been a big boon to my career is actually just uh, being quite web savvy and communicating with fans I've met so many authors who have got way less, you know, sold way less books than I have, who say, oh, it's impossible to answer fans' emails or fans' questions or, you know, and if someone comments on Twitter, a kid or a library or whatever, I'll reply. Anyone can go on my website and email me and I'll reply to their question. And I just think that thing of like being in touch uh, and you get great feedback from fans. That's where you learn about what people like and don't like about your books. But it also makes kids feel special. You know, I did it just last week. I, I got a kid who... Uh, you know, sent me a letter and I replied to his questions and he wrote me back. And then his mum wrote me back saying, oh, he was bouncing off the sofa. He was thrilled. He was so (laughs) excited. And just doing little things like that uh, is is so important because, you know, maybe people see me and they they think I'm an idiot. But fortunately, there's quite a lot of people out there who come up to. and, And it's funny now I've been published for quite a long time. I get quite a lot who are older you know, they're like in their 20s and my books have almost become a nostalgia thing because they've grown up and they've started reading them again. And they're like, oh, I've still got the cherub bags that you gave me at the event when I was 10 years old or whatever. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> All right. Well, then what do you wish you were better at? Do you, do you know, one of the things I'm quite envious of is someone like Anthony Horowitz, who has got this career where, you know, they do screenwriting, they do adult books, they do kids' books, they do. And I've tried, I mean, I've tried to write an adult book and it's never come off. I spent years trying to write, you know, literary fiction. Uh, and I, so I really wish I was more versatile. It's like I've found my niche 
writing books for kids of a certain age. And I think I'm quite good at it and I've clearly been quite successful at it. But there's definitely part of me that wishes I had a career a bit more like someone like Horowitz where, I mean, he is quite unusual, actually. It's not something many people can do, you know, but to have a kind of an extra string to my bow would just, I think, make my career much more interesting and would be something I'd really love to do. I think it's an under, you find that a lot with authors who, as you say, have kind of found a successful niche and, yeah, been very successful in it, but the, the grass is always greener, isn't it? You think like, oh, but I'd really like to write a screenplay. Yeah, but it's, it's also, you know, I mean, I wrote an adult novel a few years ago and I sort of, we got uh, a quite a senior editor to sort of send us some comments on it and we thought about sending it off to publishers and then it was like, no, nah, it just isn't right. Maybe I'll revisit someday, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I just think it would be nice to, uh, you know, just, just to have... As I, as I say, to use the cliche, the extra string to my bow would be very nice. Robert, where can people find you online? So one of the nice things about having an unusual surname, uh, like Muchamore, very unusual surname. So I am just muchamore.com. And um, if anyone wants to you know, look at my books or get in touch with me through the contact page or you go to muchamore.com, you click on the contact page and uh, – yeah, muchamore.com. I'll say it for the third time. All right. <laughs> and what work of yours would you recommend listeners check out if they haven't read you before? I mean, I guess I'm always a bit reluctant to say The Recruit because it's my first book and it's probably not the best thing I've written, but it is the most successful thing uh, that I've written and it's the first book in my first series. Uh, I'd also love to push my new Robin Hood series because in some ways it's younger, it's different, and it's the thing I'm working on now and it's the thing that excites me the most. Uh, and it's actually really interesting, Robin Hood, because because I write kids adventure series, I don't tend to get that much review coverage or anything like that. Uh, but Robin Hood has actually had really like great reviews in all of the sort of mainstream newspapers and stuff like that, which is something I've never had before. So uh, I think there is some vindication that uh, it's it's a good book and it's a book that I'm really proud of. Excellent. All right, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. It was a great thing to do. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that is also where you will find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.